Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 2022 Clinical Leadership Plus Pharmacy Virtual Event. I'm Kelly Gooch, Senior Writer Reporter with Becker's Hospital Review, and I will be your moderator for today's session on supply chain catastrophe, predictions and strategies to eliminate potential issues. Hospitals and health systems have faced major issues with their supply chains from personal protective equipment shortages at the start of the pandemic to manufacturing disruptions. And today I'm joined by three fantastic panelists to reflect on the supply chain issues hospitals are facing right now and will face in the future and how the organizations have worked to eliminate potential problems. Before we dive into that conversation, I'd like to ask each leader to briefly introduce themselves and tell us about their organization. And Christy, I would love for you to get us started. Yes, thank you, Kelly. Honored to be here today. Christy Norman, Vice President of Pharmacy Services at Emory Healthcare, which is located in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with Emory Healthcare, it is one of the most comprehensive health systems in the state of Georgia um, with nine affiliate hospitals, 11 hospitals. Um, we have uh, cover uh, hospitals in nine counties, including our Winship Cancer Institute, and have um, over 2,800 Emory and private practice positions in our organization. And Gary? Sure. Hi, I'm Gary Kerr. I'm the Chief Pharmacy Officer at Bay State Health. We are a four-hospital uh, network uh, located in western Massachusetts, we're 90 miles west of Boston and 90 miles east of Albany. We also have a very large uh, outpatient footprint, you know, with uh, the physicians, affiliated physicians practices. And we also run five pharmacies in the outpatient space, including a specialty pharmacy. Great. And Charlie. Hi, I'm Charlie Michelli. I'm the chief supply chain officer at the University of Vermont Health Network. We have six hospitals. We operate and take care of folks in Vermont and also in Northern New York, about a million uh, uh, patients that we take care of. I, I'm not a pharmacist, and I, but I do play one on TV. And um, I support, I've, I've had pharmacy report directly to me is for administrative support, but most recently was uh, one of my uh, leaders was got promoted up to vice president of pharmacy operations for our network. So uh, mentoring helps and uh, we're making our pharmacy a network operation now versus a individual hospital operation, which is great. Thank you all so much for being here again today. And I'd like to start a conversation with getting a general sense of each of you and your take on what supply chain issue should hospitals pay most attention to right now? There are of course many, but I'd love for each of you to maybe name what you what you perceive as the, the biggest one right now to pay attention to you, especially while planning to plan for the future. And maybe Charlie, we can start with you on that. Yeah, um, you know, from a pharmacy centric perspective, it's been the logistics and the availability of drivers for our uh, pharmacy wholesaler uh, partners that work with us. Um, we're very dependent upon time schedules for all of our operations and even missing an hour, an hour late or two hours late for a delivery can really uh, com complicate day-to-day uh, -day operations and ultimately delivery of uh, pharmacy services. That's been, that's been our biggest challenge over the last 
you know, 180 days. And Gary or Christy, I will uh, leave it to you if one of you wants to chime in as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add, you know, to Charlie's point, clearly, you know, moving products onto our campus is, a, is an issue. And of course, we've got to keep our eye on cost. Uh, I was on a call recently where there was a, a detailed conversation about land, sea, and air. And obviously, we've, we've all seen pictures of the ships you know, stranded, I don't know if it's Los Angeles or San Francisco in the harbor waiting for clearance. And it's going on all around, uh, you know, whether it be East Coast or West Coast, it's going on everywhere. And as the manufacturers seek alternate uh, routes, they find that if, for example, if they ship the land, they're into the pickle that Charlie just elucidated, which was drivers. And then when they look at air, some of these low margin products like generics and generic injectables simply cannot be shipped by air because it flips the, you know, the ROI and the profit margins upside down. And, you know, beyond that, inside the belly of the, the IDN, it's really around us as pharmacists having, you know, the most um, accurate, detailed day by day understanding of what we have on hand and who's using it and what dosage forms and like where we get the products from. So it's a amalgamation of all the above. And Christy, anything else you'd like to add as well? Not much to add to that. This is very much unlike what we've seen with previous shortages um, over the decades. And um, the scenario is different in that it's less predictable as to what we'll see come up as shortages. And so I would say that the biggest, bigger supply chain issues are the same as what we're seeing in our healthcare environment, which is workforce challenges. And not only that, but the logistics that go behind making sure that we have product availability. So I would say that everything's on the table right now um, and that all health systems should be paying attention to, as Gary and, and Charlie have alluded, um, what the current status of the, the most critical items are in their own facilities. Thank you so much. I think all of you really hit on the, the uncertainty uh, that's involved in the fluidness. And so I'd like to to really ask maybe how your specific organizations prepare for the unknown, because it, as you were talking about, each day does bring that uncertainty, whether it's with products available and other supply chain issues. So how should health systems really rethink their demand planning processes um, as far as your, your take and how does your organization do that? I'll leave it open to whoever wants to start us off with that. That's I'm happy crazy. to take, go ahead, Gary. No, no, go ahead, Christy. So I'm, I'm happy to take that one first. So I think this all comes down to information availability and having the data as far as um, which vendors you're using, making sure that you have relationships, not only with those vendors, but your wholesalers, your group purchasing organizations to stay on top of the items that may be next. Um, but when it comes down to data internally, the way in which we prepare at Emory Healthcare is encouraging collaboration through our tiered system, uh, system huddle structure so that we can not only share inventory counts across the system, but also have the ability to ensure that if we know our utilization practices, we know how much we have on hand, that we can see how many days we have on hand and 
better predict when we may uh, run into challenges. And so Gary, I to, think you were trying yeah, to... Yeah, so just to, to add to that, I, and I'm not disagreeing with Christy, but the difficulty had been for us is the, the decision support tools that we used were as sophisticated as they were. They're really not built to, say, react uh, in real time to, you know, drug X is out of supply. So, you know, you go to drug Y, but wait, drug Y is only available as an injectable and there's only enough for one day. And it gets so, uh, you know, micro, you know, uh, to, to manage it is just such a micromanagement exercise. So the analytics tools are really outmatched when it comes to things like this that are happening, you know, day to day. And, it, you know, in the peak of the pandemic, when, you know, the systems have hundreds of patients intubated, you know, in the system in beds, you know, things like the neuromuscular blockers are just essential, you know, for, uh, as we would say, emergency rooms, ORs, and critical care units, they quickly become, from a triage perspective, the primary focus of all of your work. And, you know, again, as Christy said, I'd argue, said it my whole life, but I, I'd argue that it puts such an emphasis on, on your ability to have relationships you know, where you have the cell phone of the chief of anesthesiology and you can call them up and say, we have to talk, you know, like right now. We don't, we're not going to get a meeting in two weeks and we need to talk now. So there's a tremendous pressure on, you know, collaboration and, and relationships and availability of all parties. Absolutely. Yeah, I, think, and I think one of the things too, you know, after Hurricane Maria, in 2018, that was kind of the canary in the coal mine. Uh, we were all chasing mini bags for the longest time. Um, and that changed our way that, you know, we brought material out and these, uh, some surveillance systems or uh, supply chain disruption surveillance systems started to manifest and, and uh, uh, become uh, adopted uh, by not, not a lot of hospitals or health systems, but now there's been over the last year and a half, there's been a pretty good sea change in the sense that there's, there's been several organizations stood up along with the group purchasing organizations to look at supply chain resiliency, uh, you know, from APIs to logistics to regular uh, drug and other uh, uh, components. It's a moving target. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a tough situation. Uh, this one organization just stood up is called the Health Industry Resilience Collaborative. And I, uh, I know that a number of uh, hospitals across the country was started by Mayo Clinic and Spectrum Health in Michigan. And it's, it's just grown, uh, is, is addressing that on an industry-wide perspective and starting to bring in uh, manufacturers as well as distributors. Uh, in pharma as well as in, uh, you know, regular med surge supply. Absolutely. And uh, Gary, I know one thing that you've, um, you've mentioned before is your organization's work um, with specifically steps when it comes to oral medications to treat COVID. And of course, there have been times supply has been limited during um, surges. And so what are your what, have, what has your organization done? Maybe what are some predictions and strategies you have to eliminate potential issues with that specifically? Yeah, sure, uh, Kelly. 
Um, this is near and dear to my heart because this all really started first week in uh, January, right after the holiday, where our system was designated as one of the systems that would have access to the oral uh, antiviral. Um, and so that set into motion a series of events. You know, we are allocated X number of courses of therapy. Uh, the pharmacy, uh, you know, the pharmacy staff, the leaders, et cetera, worked extensively with the infectious disease folks. And, you know, the, the, the issue around the single drug, the Paxlovid, um, you know, we're, we're allocated a certain number of uh, courses and the algorithm that needed to be developed. And, and the docs would look to me and, you know, we'd look back at the docs and say, neither one of us wants to do this alone. So we have a, you know, an epidemiologist slash ID doc who has really helped uh, develop the algorithm. It's posted on, a, on an intranet and it's updated, you know, daily as needed. The supplies get shipped in. We've used the emergency room as one source of uh, dispense. We've also used a couple of our outpatient pharmacies as the other source of the dispense. But they all get, every patient gets pre-screened by a single doc, believe it or not. Um, you know, mostly for, uh, you know, what tier of need you are, your age, your comorbid conditions. And once she passes the person through, the order's written, you know, typically sent to one of our pharmacies. We have you know, supplies of the drug and an educated clinical pharmacist group, you know, at each site to kind of, to, to manage it. But the pickle that we ran into as simple as it sounds is that, you know, this all started on January 3rd. So by the end of the week, no one had considered the fact that two of our pharmacies are not open, you know, on the weekend. So we quickly, you know, moved product around and got back to the you know, to the IV physician who's kind of coordinating all of this. And so now the pharmacy that's located at the Academic Medical Center now also would have supply. So on Friday afternoon, when the other pharmacies closed that, you know, that they had had drug there. But that, that's kind of the long and short of it. Pharmacy working very closely with the state and also with the ID docs, you know, mostly to make sure that only, you know, select patients are getting the drug, both from a safety perspective and from an appropriateness perspective. And uh, Christy, is that what you're seeing at your organization as well, a similar process? So in the state of Georgia, our Department of Public Health partnered with federally contracted pharmacies, meaning that we did not receive any oral antivirals in our system. And so what we've been doing is working very closely with our contacts there to ensure that the pharmacies that would be carrying the product um, would be in close proximity to the patients that we felt would most likely benefit from access, where vaccination rates were generally low and our risk for infection was high. So that has not been a challenge for us, just working very closely with the state. Absolutely. And Charlie, uh, what has the process been like for, for your organization? Yeah, I, I don't have the detail components like uh, Christy and Gary have, but uh, again, uh, collaboration with our state government and agencies uh, with a command and control from our state government and agencies for availability of the specific drug in, in, the, in those instances uh, was, is, has been the process in our, in our area. Wonderful. And 
I wanted to now talk about when there are drug shortages and what emergency strategies maybe hospital pharmacies should have in place for when that happens. And maybe Christy, if you wanted to start with that, but just your take on maybe what's worked that you've seen and your own observations there. Yes, so at Emory Healthcare, we set up a triage committee, which is a multidisciplinary committee very early on when the pandemic began. And so I believe that that's key to have in place and it includes our providers, our pharmacy, uh, pharmacy team members, uh, several of our hospital leaders, our ethics um, leaders within the system so that if we get into a position where we need to triage or prioritize our, uh, our very limited resources, we already have a structure in place to do so. We haven't had to do that yet, but we know that that's there if we need it. The other strategies that we've taken on is one, creating system level awareness of what types, what our inventory is across the system, as well as setting up good communication mechanisms so that we can get out providers to uh, notifications to our providers quickly and also update our systems with any pertinent notices. And so the line of communication is key and having an ability to triage any emergent shortages uh, all the way through the system and prioritize those services um, would be beneficial. Beautiful. And Gary, I know you have talked about working with medical leaders, specifically at your organization, when these, when these issues come up. And, and as Christy mentioned, that communication. And so you might have something to add there as well. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't have much more to say other than the criticality of you know, relationships and making sure the medical and nursing leaders are on the same page as you. These are not things that can wait till the end of the day or, you know, when you're, when you're sending out pages at 7.30 in the morning, you kind of need to get everybody together quickly. So a tremendous reliance on, you know, relationships and real-time kind of mobility to kind of figure out your game plan. You know, a couple of other things, you know, just from a systematic perspective, you, you know, you've got to have a very acute awareness, I'm sure Charlie does this all day, but of your external, you know, sources of your incoming supply. So we always, you know, have the ability to, whether it's our wholesaler or in some cases another middleman, to, to know how to get drug quickly. Uh, and then internally, I mean, when we first had, had issues with the albuterol inhalers, I, I think you know, right away, you start asking yourself about Pixis machines and what about the doctor's offices? So it's not just the hospital proper. You're trying to find the drug everywhere you can, you know, on campus, at least be aware of it. And if you need to, to gather it and bring it back, you do that. And then, you know, from a, from a future perspective, I think, you know, the pharmacy guys have, have kind of picked up the ball on You've got to understand what's happening in the next week or two. Like, is the drug going to be available? You know, do you call, you know, a particular manufacturer? Is there a guy locally whose cell phone that I have? It's really that, you know, it's that acute, uh, you know, that we've experienced in the last couple of years where you're calling people five to 10 times a week and trying to find out when is the next, you know, release going to come because, you know, as a, 800 bed large academic center in Springfield here, you know, we need drug to, to, to run the operation. Absolutely. And Charlie, I know you have a lot of IT background and experience and uh, anything from 
that technology perspective as well that you would want to mention? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, um, you know, being agnostic, look, making sure that you have, you know, inventory level balancing with your with your automate auto, your pharmacy automation systems, but um, you know, one of the other things is, uh, and, and, and everything that Christy and, and Gary said uh, aligns up, but um, besides the, the automation and the point of presence in your inventory systems for cross-leveling and intra-network, uh, um, you know, within affiliates, is having that relationship with other health systems. Um, we have a strong relationship with Dartmouth uh, uh, Health, uh, Hitchcock Health in, down in New Hampshire. And uh, they have affiliate hospitals in Vermont, and we work very closely with their chief pharmacy officer and her staff, as well as the supply chain folks. In fact, we we created a a, a, a wartime partnership with them uh, to help each other out during uh, the the first few waves. And it and not so much on the pharmacy side. I mean, I know that they there was there was help back and forth there. Uh, Dartmouth has a telepharmacy program that really helped out, but uh, just, you know, having that line of communication is critical. Absolutely. And you've all mentioned some great insights there. And so I was hoping we could go around and maybe each of you could give an example of a drug shortage issue during the pandemic and how your organization confronted the challenge, which you've talked a little about this already, but maybe a a real good concrete example would be great. And Gary, I think you, and you mentioned earlier today as well, um, neuromuscular blockers, maybe you could talk about that. Sure, I, I'd, be, I'd be wrong to just jump into it without saying it. it's, it's so not cookbook. You know, when we ask the question or you see it on paper, you feel like you could just give a cookbook answer. And it really is, you know, uh, it's all hands on deck. It's who's on today. It's we're gonna have a problem in two days if we don't, you know, we don't get our act together. So yeah, to pick on neuromuscular blockers, every one of us understands their role in terms of ventilated patients. And unfortunately, you know, early on in the pandemic, we had, you know, hundreds of people on ventilators at any given point in time. And you, you simply cannot run out of neuromuscular blockers. So there is no easy answer to the question other than we have never micromanaged chemicals and supplies and vial size and who's working in the IV room and can we draw it up in, you know, five ml syringes instead of, instead of 20 ml syringes. It's just a constant, you know, effort uh, of micromanaging. So neuromuscular blockers, fentanyl, no one would ever have really comprehended how critical, you know, fentanyl is. You just can't, you, you can't run out of it. So you end up counting every, you know, every place in the hospital, you count it, you keep, keep a running, you know, tab on a spreadsheet, you post it on the internet. The pharmacy folks have been great about, you know, doing that. And then the, you know, the last drug that really was um, so high visibility was the albuterol products. There aren't a lot of alternatives in the marketplace when it comes to oral, you know, uh, uh, beta agonist inhalers. And I remember uh, at one point, as, as silly as this sounds, that you know, I was online looking up the, I knew primatine mist had been reformulated and it's like, that is not an acceptable product in, you know, regular, you know, operating uh, circumstances. But in that case, you would say, 
you know, I'm calling pediatricians and asking them, you know, if we literally run out of the drug, you know, we don't have any options other than no drug or, you know, some of these drugs that really have fallen into, you know, disfavor. So those, my, those would be my three examples, the neuromuscular blockers, the fentanyl and the albuterol. And Christy, any other examples that you come to your mind? I'll speak to one that, that's actually more recent, and that's the uh, concentrated electrolytes and what we're seeing with those currently. So think about potassium or calcium and items that you'd be using in critically ill patients. And with those IV products, uh, our first strategy was to look at what alternatives um, were out there and available, because often what we'll see, and I think Gary spoke about this earlier, is a trickle-down impact where if one is um, goes on short, then you can anticipate that others will also soon be on shortage. And so our strategy with that was really to look at, um, one, what alternatives were available to make an assessment of what our status was across the system, uh, to look at any alternatives, including oral supplementation, and evaluate our protocols um, and pr provide our providers um, and those that are prescribing those with all of the options that are available to them, encouraging them to use alternatives. Um, and that requires updates to our computer systems, sometimes updates to our pumps and our practices for compounding and everything that goes along with that. But again, and we've talked about this before, the key is communication, provider collaboration, um, and educating so that we can also make those transitions safely. Um, when people have to use therapies that they wouldn't typically use or modalities that they wouldn't typically use, making sure that we've gotten the information out so that we can make those alternatives occur safely for our patients. And Charlie, anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, um, you know, when you bring in new technology or replacement technology, say for like syringe pumps or for your infusion centers and stuff like that, you need to make sure <laughs> that you know, the suppliers can provide the support for the transition that you, you can balance, load balance with your IT requirements to make sure that you can safely have the right formularies and, uh, and everything loaded up and, and transferable into the devices. Um, that's been a challenge because of uh, staffing and workforce and um, availability uh, to, you, you may have all the best equipment in the world, but if you can't operationalize it and prepare it from an IT, from a biomed, from a safety perspective, you can't deploy it. And that, that's been a big, that's been a challenge. We've overcome it, but uh, you didn't think about that before. It was just routinized. Yeah, you got it in. Everybody was available and um, you, you made it happen. You celebrated it. Here, here we were worrying about implementation times and everything else that everybody else had to do. And you had to carve out that space to maintain, you know, a safe environment. Yeah, thank you all so much for those examples. I'd, I'd like to, I'd like to leave a little time here toward, toward the end of our discussion to really get some key takeaways and final thoughts from you. And of course, with our hospital executive audience, I'd love to, to get those final thoughts from each of you and maybe Charlie, do you want to start? Yeah, um, leverage your GPO uh, expertise in the in the in the pharmacy area. Um, a lot of those folks have been on the ground. 
and have done the, the work that our, our pharmacy, our CP, our chief pharmacy officers have done. And uh, don't be afraid to ask for help. I think that's, that's critical. And leverage the data sets and the supplier relationships that your group purchasing organization or your regional uh, group has. And Christy? Yeah, so I would just add uh, to, to what Charlie's been saying, and we've, we've talked about this, but making sure that you have the information you need to make proper assessments around how you'll move forward with a particular shortage. Again, the importance of collaboration and communication. And, and three, for many of these uh, shortages, we've either seen them in the past, although not necessarily all at the same time. And so making sure that we're documenting the actions that we took uh, to address any particular shortage so that we can reflect back on those and we aren't reinventing the wheel each time. And Gary? Yeah, I'll just, um, I'll piggyback on something Charlie mentioned about the GPO, but we, um, we were one of 11 health systems back in September that, you know, worked with our GPO to acquire a minority stake in a domestic manufacturing company. So, I mean, as a health system, that was a big deal for us. But I think it, it, it's, you know, theoretically, it's to get at this, the, uh, all the issues with the global supply chain, you know, it's the, it's access to the raw material, it's conversion to active pharmaceutical ingredients, it's manufacturing the finished product. So, you know, we've done that. It's kind of early on to, you know, fundamentally it makes sense. It's early on for me to stand here and talk about dramatic, you know, uh, pluses that we've generated. But I think at the root of it all is that, you know, we, we all need to continue to stay super educated on this. The, the concept of, you know, call it America, and such focus on the vaccines really at the assembly line level meant that, you know, things like uh, stoppers, rubber stoppers and glass vials were almost entirely dedicated to the vaccine line. And then what happens, as Christy mentioned, the concentrated electrolytes, you know, come in short supply. So it's all these, you know, the interplay of all these uh, issues, you know, and again, we need to do everything in our power to to play to the resiliency of a domestic supply chain so we don't rely on Italy and the Eastern Bloc countries and China like we have in the past. Absolutely, I, I think that's a great insight, really looking at that, that resiliency there and all the factors involved. I think that's, thank you all so much. Those are all great insights. And that is about all the time we have left for today. And Christy, Gary, and Charlie, thank you so much again for your time and thoughtful remarks. And thank you also to our attendees for taking some time out of your day to be part of the 2022 Clinical Leadership Plus Pharmacy Virtual Event. Please be sure to check out our other great sessions as well during the forum and let us know if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. Thanks again for joining us and we look forward to seeing all of you at future Becker's events. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all so much. <laughs>